Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 141 of the Podium Panel Podcast, and a special episode, one we haven't had for a while. Uh, we are joined by an advocate in a recent case that we talked about. Well, not so recent, considering we talked about it in the fall. And that case is Mallory versus Norfolk Southern. And Dan and I are, are, uh, are honored to be joined today by Ashley Keller, who represents the, uh, the plaintiffs in, in that case. Uh, before uh, the Supreme Court. We discussed this case back in the fall when it happened, or what was argued, rather. Uh, the decision has not yet come down. No surprise, considering the pace of uh, the work by the court and how really novel the arguments that are presented. And those are principally Ashley's fault. Uh, we'll get into that. Uh, he, he scrambled the egg, shall we say, in the argument, and I think is in, in a very creative way and has put his clients in a position to perhaps win a case that might not otherwise have been winnable in with the composition of the current court. Um, so uh, kudos for some real creative thinking that we're going to talk about. Uh, I want to let him introduce himself. He's got some a very interesting background. I won't do justice to it. So Ashley, please tell the, uh, the audience about your about your background and where you're currently uh, where you currently practice. Sure. Hey, Pat. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me on. It's a real privilege. Uh, so I'm Ashley Keller. I'm a partner at Keller Postman, uh, which is a plaintiff side firm that's focused on complex mass actions, uh, mass torts. Uh, we have a pioneering mass arbitration practice, uh, and we do some antitrust and other class matters uh, on behalf of sovereigns and individuals. Um, I have, as you suggested, a little bit of a unique background. Uh, prior to starting this firm, I founded a litigation funding firm uh, where we eventually sold that practice to uh, Burford, which is the largest uh, litigation funder listed on the AIM in London. Uh, and so a little bit of a law and finance background that I sort of straddle both of those disciplines uh, and have throughout my career. So um Plaintiff's law would not have necessarily been the thing that jumped off the page from my resume, but uh, I really enjoy it. I think it draws on my business skills. Uh, and uh, as you said, it, it sort of brought me to Mallory, which is a really fun case. Well, I, I want to go back to your part, to your career prior to litigation funding. Where did you go to law school and where did you clerk? Because that's well, I think that's relevant. So I went to law and business school at the University of Chicago Law School in the Booth School of Business. Um, was all set to go work at a hedge fund, uh, but then had an opportunity, a real honor and privilege to clerk for uh, Richard Posner on the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Uh, he is rightly, in my mind, regarded as the godfather of the law and economics movement. Uh, and then I had the great privilege of clerking for Justice Kennedy, October term 2008, at the Supreme Court. Outstanding. So I, I think that that kind of gives a and uh, gives us a very good idea of your background and what's is, is somewhat unique. Um, how did it, 
how did how is it that you came to be involved in the Mallory case, and who do you represent in in that case? Sure. So I represent Mallory. And I guess, and one other thing: at what stage did you become involved? So I represent Mallory, and I became involved at the Supreme Court phase. I had nothing to do with the case in the trial court or the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, I also have the privilege of serving on the Law and Briefing Committee with the co-chair of that committee being a friend, Fred Longer, uh, who was at the firm that represented uh, and continues to rep represent Mr. Mallory at the trial court and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And when I saw the decision come down from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, I essentially reached out to Fred and said, hey, um, I think you have a shot of getting this to the Supreme Court at CERT, uh, but the types of arguments that are going to resonate with this court are not necessarily the sort of traditional plaintiff's lawyer arguments. I happen to be uh, maybe not unique, but unusual in the plaintiff's bar and that I actually am a card-carrying member of the Federalist Society. I speak the lingo. I'm an originalist. Uh, and I think that that's the sort of presentation that you're going to want to provide uh, if we're going to not just get this thing granted, but have a shot at getting the W. So um, Fred, very graciously uh, went to his partner and to the client and made that pitch. And for the uh, very lucrative rate of a dollar, uh, they retained me to uh, do the case. And so we wrote the cert petition. And then obviously, once it was granted, we did the merits briefs. So why don't we talk about, uh, so this is a case that, as this is a personal jurisdiction case. So that's, it's not unusual, or in fact, it's the usual way that these cases come from the highest court in a particular state when the original case is filed in the filed in a state trial court makes its way through the state system. In this case, the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, found that there was not personal jurisdiction. And so your next avenue of appeal is to the uh, to the United to the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, tell us about the facts of Mallory and the statute that's at work and at issue. And then I want to circle back to the, what you've called the traditional plaintiff's arguments and the originalist arguments that you've made both at the cert stage and at the merit stage. Yeah, sure. So you're right that it's not unusual to go trial court, then state Supreme Court, then to the U.S. Supreme Court on personal jurisdiction. An interesting wrinkle in this case is that Mallory is bringing a FILA cause of action, which is a federal statute. Normally, if you're bringing a federal question as a plaintiff in state court, the defendants remove in a New York minute. Uh, but Congress chose to not allow removal uh, based on federal question jurisdiction. And because Mr. Mallory is from Virginia, and at the time Norfolk Southern was also from Virginia, there was no diversity jurisdiction. So that's a fun little uh, asterisk that I could put on that sort of normal path that you described. Can, 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 we, can we stop there for a minute on our path? Does the fact, and, and I'll keep this in mind, does the fact that this is a FILA case, you think, is that going to play a role in the, in the ultimate outcome of the case? I, want, I think just want to flag that issue as we move through. You never know. Uh, it, it could play a role. You know, one of the policy arguments that you hear against Mr. Mallory's position is we shouldn't let plaintiffs forum shop. There's forum shopping. But Congress, by statute, chose to let plaintiffs forum shop in a way that's different than other federal question cases. So normally, if there's a federal question, the plaintiff can forum shop to go to state court, but the defendants get a right to remove to federal court. So they're both forum shopping. Congress said, not here. We're not going to let you do it. 
uh, defendants for policy reasons that Congress obviously has a right to prefer, they elected to say that a plaintiff's choice to be in state court, if there's no other basis of jurisdiction, doesn't get you to federal court. So that that could be something that's important to one of the justices. Uh, it's definitely mentioned in the briefs, although it doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, so going back to your question about the facts, you know, Mr. Mallory worked for Norfolk Southern uh, in the rail cars, and uh, as we are perhaps discovering more today, uh, there's lots of stuff in those rail cars, um, and some of it's toxic. And when you pull up the rugs and other things, uh, you can be exposed to those toxins. And that's what Mr. Mallory alleged happened to him. After years of exposure, he developed cancer. Uh, and so he wanted redress for his injuries for getting exposed to those carcinogens. And uh, as a result, he filed suit in Philadelphia. Um, he, a question came up at argument, you know, why'd you file there? You're not from there. He lived in Pennsylvania for a while. Um, not in Philadelphia, though, as I noted it at oral argument. Uh, and the reason that the case was filed there is, is twofold. One, uh, his lawyers were from there, uh, and uh, there was a, he's in a union or was in a union, and the union uh, solicited for his case as is permitted by uh, union rules and then made a referral to uh, Fred and his partner, who I mentioned to you before, uh, and so all of those counsel are in Philadelphia. They know the court system well. And the second point that's related to that is they know that from the plaintiff's perspective, they get a fair shake in Philadelphia. Now, what would a defendant say to that? They'd say Philadelphia is a hellhole and yeah, they, the they, defendants they, don't they, get a they fair don't, shake. They don't, they don't, they would say that. They do say that. <laughs> yeah. Quite right. literally. Yeah, it's right. It's not a hypothetical. Let's be clear. That, that, uh, you know, uh, it, there are two sides to every V. Uh, and so obviously, you know, plaintiffs like to be in certain places because they think they can do better there. And defendants like to be in certain places because they think they can do better there. And zealous advocacy on behalf of your client, I think, requires you to try to get them into the forum that's best for them. And so I don't fault defendants for, you know, trying to remove, trying to get things transferred, forum non, all that stuff. That's their job. And it's my job to land plaintiffs in the place that I think is going to do the best for them. So while forum shopping is uh, a doublet that I think gets a very bad rap, the truth is plaintiffs and defendants do it routinely in every civil case. And in some cases, I would say it's malpractice not to do it. Uh, so in any event, to, to go back to uh, the second part of your question, what's the statute at issue here? Pennsylvania has a statute that it enacted in 1978 that is really just the more modern version of a statute uh, that goes all the way back to the 1870s uh, and mirrors some statutes that were first enacted in the states uh, as early as 1827 that essentially says if you're a foreign corporation and by foreign i mean not from this state if you want to do business here you've got to register uh, and by registering you're going to consent to personal jurisdiction in our state's courts and that consent is going to take on whatever form the state as a matter of policy dictates. And so sometimes uh, states would say, you have to consent to what we would now call specific personal jurisdiction. You have to consent to suits arising out of your agent's contacts with our state. Sometimes, oftentimes, uh, the states would say more than that. They would say, you've just got to consent to any suit whatsoever, uh, which is what we would now call general jurisdiction. And then sometimes they would say, you've got to consent to all suits 
bought, brought by residents of our state. Um, so those are the, the three broad categories of these consent by registration statute. And Pennsylvania has the broadest type, uh, the 1978 statute, which again mirrors the statute from the 1870s, says that if you come into our state as a foreign corporation, the uh, quid pro quo for us letting you do business in the Commonwealth is you're going to consent to jurisdiction uh, for all suits brought by any plaintiff. You guys there? Uh-oh. Pat, I think I'm I froze here. on you. I don't see Pat now. Oh, there he is. Maybe it's Pat's internet. It's 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 definitely mine. Um, so let's pick up where you left off with the with the statute. Um, the uh, how did you at the uh, cert stage argue that this was in line with the traditional notions of of uh, Due process, or did you argue, or did you take it, try to take it outside of that uh, international shoe framework altogether? Yeah. So um, at cert, right, the question is a little different than on the merits. At cert, you're essentially telling the Supreme Court this is worthy of your review. There's a split. The state Supreme Courts don't agree with each other. The federal courts don't agree with each other. So this is the sort of case you want to take, and you only really tease them on the merits. So we didn't go into great detail on the different categories of statute, the original public meaning, but we certainly mentioned it. We, we made clear that we were gonna rely on an originalist argument on the merits. And we noted that consent by registration is compatible with the international shoe regime. Uh, I won't pretend that I think international shoe is an originalist opinion. It is not uh, the uh, almost dissent, the concurrence that reads like a dissent from Justice Black, I think makes this pretty clear. But I don't want to be in the business of asking the Supreme Court to overturn precedent when I don't have to. And it's obviously a seminal decision of the court that's been around a long time. So it would be a pretty big deal to ask them to overturn it. And that wasn't necessary for Mr. Mallory to prevail. To the contrary, uh, the other side is the one that's asking the Supreme Court to overturn precedent. They want Pennsylvania fire which is a 100-year-old uh, unanimous Oliver Wendell Holmes decision, which allowed these consent by registration statutes to comport with due process. They want that opinion to be either overturned or they say it's already been overturned silently by the international shoe line of cases. So what is, so you've argued that these consent by registration statutes go back to the 1870s, I think you said. What is the uh, response from the defendant regarding the, the pedigree of these statutes and whether they really um, go back as far as you say they do. Yeah, so they actually go back to 1827. Virginia's was the first statute uh, that we found, uh, and it, it was enacted in 1827. Uh, Pennsylvania's version uh, was in the 1870s, but there were many, many, many statutes, I think 18 prior to 1868, which is when the 14th Amendment was ratified. Uh, that's just over half the union because there were only 35 states. The defendant's response is to essentially say, 
Number one, ignore the text of these statutes. So even though they said that they applied to all claims that a plaintiff could bring, they didn't really mean it. And they do find a court case or two that reigns back the statutory text, not based on the due process clause. They have no case that says the text is incompatible with the due process clause, uh, which is obviously the, the question presented. But they do have a few cases that say, eh, we, did the legislature really mean to say all uh, when you know the foreign plaintiff with foreign facts doesn't really have a connection to our state? We're going to interpret these statutes more narrowly. So, so that's sort of argument number one. And argument number two is these have all fallen by the wayside and history moves on and Pennsylvania didn't even defend its own law. The AG of Pennsylvania, who was uh, running for and has since been elected governor of Pennsylvania, um, and our oral argument happened on election day, so kind of a nice coincidence, uh, he didn't weigh in and, and you know rattle the cages of all of these big businesses while he was running for higher office. So not even Pennsylvania wants to defend this law. Whatever vitality they had uh, as a sort of way to help interpret the 14th Amendment, you know, history and tradition have moved on. And, and those, I think, are the two essential responses. Um, you know, don't pay attention to the text. You know, it's, and it's, it's, states don't do this anymore. It's, it's yeah, it's interesting you mentioned history and tradition go, go on because this is a court, as, we, as the three of us know, that is very, uh, very focused on history and tradition. It comes up repeatedly in cases from Dobbs to Bruins to everything else of history and tradition and what the history and tradition of things were. So it's, uh, it's interesting that history and tradition moves on in this case uh, versus a lot of the docket that's uh, used history and tradition in the last two, three terms uh, more and more extensively. So just an interesting observation, I think. I, I agree with you. Um, my, uh, my strong response to that line of arguments, uh, and it did come up at the argument, is the definition of due process of law has a meaning that was fixed in and around 1868 and if the people have moved on and no longer like it, they're more than free to invoke the Article Five procedure and change the Constitution. But the Constitution shouldn't be changed by the court um, just because it now perceives there to be no need for these statutes. The fact that the states used to be able to do this means that they're still able to do it. What What about there was a, there was a substantial argument, if I recall correctly, about the Dormant Commerce Clause and about how that these statutes might lead to a balkanization of the economy. So a policy argument, you know, wrapped up in a Dormant Commerce Clause argument, which I think was particularly pushed by Justice Kavanaugh. Um, and, and the same people you're trying to peel off to prevail uh, on the originalist theory are ones that aren't a big fan of the Dormant Commerce Clause. So... Explain to me, how did the briefing go with regards to that issue? And, and how do you see that playing out potentially? Yeah, so that's a interesting and important question. The party's briefs didn't touch the Dormant Commerce Clause. We sought cert only on the Due Process Clause. Uh, they filed a brief in opposition only on the Due Process Clause, and it was a really half-hearted brief in opposition. They, they almost conceded that the case was worthy of being granted. And then 
when we filed our initial merits brief, we zeroed in on the due process clause. So the briefing on the dormant commerce clause really comes up from the United States' amicus submission, uh, where they talk about how Pennsylvania fire has been eroded by some subsequent Supreme Court cases that relied not on the due process clause, but on the dormant commerce clause to invalidate some of these registration statutes. Uh, I pointed out that those cases have other cases that distinguish them based on criteria that I can't actually understand. They're very um, terse and and not well explained uh, distinctions, but uh, you know, the Dormant Commerce Clause is a completely separate constitutional doctrine. I won't even say it's a constitutional provision because you obviously have deduced my view that there is no Dormant Commerce Clause, uh, and it's a figment of Chief Justice Marshall's wild imagination. Um, but be that as it may, uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause definitely came up at oral argument. And so how it's going to play into the court's decision um, even though it wasn't the question presented and it wasn't briefed by the main parties, I, I do not know. Uh, it's interesting and difficult. It, it, indeed, you said that the United States, the United States had, had divided with the, with the uh, defendants, the, the, the uh, respondents here. And it did. And then there were, I, I have to imagine, I didn't look at SCOTUS blog, perhaps I should have. I have to imagine there were a slew of amicus briefs on both sides. Oh yeah, there were a lot of green briefs, uh, as you would expect. And did any of them uh, raise the dormant commerce clause argument, or was that solely the government's position? No. Um, hopefully, for me, uh, Professor Steve Sachs, who's at Harvard uh, and a, a very well-regarded originalist scholar on questions of procedure and due process, uh, I think he's the the best on this. Uh, he wrote an amicus submission in favor of neither side, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be aggressive as an advocate and say he's really on my side. What he says is, uh, I'm right. Mr. Mallory is right about the due process clause as an original matter, and then on the dormant commerce clause, the case law is kind of murky. As an original matter, people have asked serious questions about whether there's a dormant commerce clause, and leaving that issue open on remand is important. And the distinction between due process and dormant commerce matters because Congress could repeal the dormant commerce clause tomorrow, but obviously the due process clause is locked in other than through the article five amendment process. And so um, professor Sachs essentially asked for the same relief I asked for, which is reverse and remand. Um, and you know, the Pennsylvania Supreme court or trial court can consider the dormant commerce clause on the, uh, in the first instance. But he, he discusses the Dormant Commerce Clause at length and sort of lays out the murky case law that I referenced to you and how it's not in an open and shut case under modern doctrine whether this would survive a Dormant Commerce challenge. The, um, you mentioned that Pennsylvania didn't come in and you suggested a reason why. Uh, the Attorney General was running for uh, governor and didn't want to uh, endanger, you know, Perhaps it didn't want to endanger those hopes, even though I think he wanted a walk, if I remember correctly. Uh, he but did. I, it was not close. Yeah, but I, I, I get the I get the point. They would have had to make that decision long before election day. Did any other states come in on either side uh, as amicus in this case? 
Yes. Uh, so breaking my heart, uh, Virginia uh, and some other mostly red states um, filed an amicus brief, essentially trying to rebut uh, Mr. Mallory's view of the history and traditions of the country in this area. And, you know, um, I respect all of those folks and a lot of them are uh, friends of mine or, or certainly good acquaintances of mine, but on this one, uh, very respectfully, they're on the wrong side of it. The, you, you mentioned, so at the time of this, Norfolk Southern was a Virginia corporation, correct? Yes. And Mr. Mallory lived in Pennsylvania for some time, but some of his, but he lived, but he's an Ohio resident, correct? He's a, actually, he's a citizen of Virginia. I'm sorry, Virginia. Which is I'm why sorry. there was no diversity. That's okay. Sorry, I, I misspoke. Now, there was a big, there, I, I, I want to say it was Justice Sotomayor that made a big deal about the amount of railway and other activities that Norfolk Southern actually has in um, uh, Pennsylvania. I think it was the most mileage of track that it has anywhere in the country. And that somehow, yes. and, and that that played into her thinking on it. That. I think it's Justice Sotomayor. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, she pointed out, and an amicus brief pointed this out, that Pennsylvania has far more operations, activity, contacts, whatever you want to call it, in Pennsylvania compared to Virginia. And so the only thing that makes uh, Norfolk Southern at home in Virginia is they've chosen to incorporate there. They've chosen to file a piece of paper saying we're going to be a Virginia company. They've since uh, moved that, uh, I think, to Georgia, but that that's not you know necessarily relevant to her line of thinking. And she has weighed in on this before. This is not new from Justice Sotomayor's perspective. Uh, she has pointed out that the court's general jurisdiction jurisprudence has narrowed pretty significantly through Daimler and Goodyear to essentially say a corporation can only be at home where it has its headquarters or it's incorporated. And her point is, um, that is not how it used to be after International Shoe. So it's not required by International Shoe itself. And it seems pretty bizarre to say that a corporate entity that has all of these people and operations and track and you know all of the stuff that corporations do, they do more of it in Pennsylvania compared to Virginia but you can sue for any suit under the sun in Virginia, but not in Pennsylvania. She doesn't see why the Constitution requires that kind of oddball reasoning. So turning in, in this case is I think we talked about it when Dan and I talked about it on the show back in the fall may lead to some interesting bedfellows uh, when it comes time for the opinion. And, and so I want to shift from uh, Justice Sotomayor to her usual uh, compatriot, Justice Kagan, who I believe was making arguments or asking questions and suggested arguments related to unconstitutional conditions and, and things of this nature related to they signed a piece of paper and now they're subject to every suit under the sun in Pennsylvania. How, how is that? So expand on this uncon because this, this case is like a layers of an onion. It's crazy. And it, there are so much here. Uh, and and the, the the positions that you see, so you got dormant commerce clause, you got regular old personal jurisdiction, you've got, uh, and now we, we've got unconstitutional conditions. Tell us about how did that play out in the briefing, and and at oral argument, and and at oral argument. 
Yeah. So in the briefing, we definitely talked about unconstitutional conditions. Um, that's the doctrine that essentially says just because a state has a greater power doesn't mean it can exercise a lesser power that would impinge on your constitutional rights. So a less controversial example of that is the state obviously has the power to tax your income, but that doesn't mean that because they could set a tax rate at 10%, let's say, of your income, that they're allowed to say it's 10% unless you engage in pro-Democrat or pro-Republican speech, in which case it's 5%. The fact that they're allowed to set a 10% tax doesn't give them the lesser power to sort of impinge on your First Amendment rights. And so that would be a sort of classic illustration of an unconstitutional condition. The way that plays out potentially here is um, if you accept the premise that states in 1868 had the power to say, we're not letting foreign corporations into our market at all, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the lesser power to say, well, we will let you in, but only if you sign this piece of paper and consent to jurisdiction. So the briefing joins that issue, and we make a couple of points uh, in Mr. Mallory's favor. The first point is we have not found a single unconstitutional conditional uh, unconstitutional conditions case that applies to procedural rights as opposed to substantive rights. So the First Amendment example I just gave you, your right to freedom of speech is obviously a substantive right that would be impaired by that condition. Um, the due process right at issue here, the right to not be hailed into a court uh, without your consent, that's usually thought of as a procedural right. No one, I think, talks about um, personal jurisdiction as a matter of substantive due process. They think of it as procedural due process. And so we said categorically, we're just not in the right box when we're talking about procedural rights. The other thing we said uh, in keeping with our originalist position is the states all did this. Every single one of them conditioned access to their markets on signing this sort of piece of paper and agreeing to some form of personal jurisdiction. And so if you're going to rely on history and tradition to tell you where there's an unconstitutional condition, the history and tradition tells us here, it's not a problem. Um, and then this sort of was teased out more at oral argument. And you're right, Justice Kagan, I think was the justice most focused on this doctrinal point. Um, and you know, I don't know if it was a good move or a bad move, but I, I sort of made a concession to the court, which is I don't understand your unconstitutional conditions doctrine because it's not uniform. Sometimes you say the greater power includes the lesser, and sometimes you say it doesn't, and sometimes there's a balancing test. Um, there's no consistent underlying principle that lets me say in this situation, yes, in this situation, no. Um, and that's why I think history and tradition is so important here. If there's not going to be a uniform principle that lets you say in every case, here's the rule of decision, then you should probably stick pretty closely to what the states were doing in and around 1868 and use that as your guide if you can. And here we've got that very strong historical record. Real, just so for people that aren't familiar with the originalist position and why Ashley keeps referencing 1868, 1868 is the date of the passage of the 14th Amendment from which this right uh, to not be hailed into a court where you don't have sufficient minimum contacts is found in international shoe. That's the year when the 14th Amendment was passed. And it's why he's looking at 1868 and not 1791. 
Um, you, whenever you're, that's the argument you get a lot of times when you're talking about incorporation. So when the, when the Second Amendment got incorporated into the uh, 14th Amendment, are we looking at eight, seven, are we looking at 1791 when the Second Amendment was passed? Or are we looking at 1868 when it was incorporated against the states in order to figure out whether, because the laws were different in 1791 than they were in 1868. Hey, as I say, guns. Um, and, and, and what were, uh, how, how that changes how you do the analysis. That's, for those that aren't familiar, that's the originalist argument in that regard. And that's what made this argument so unique is having a plaintiff's personal injury case being argued from an originalist perspective. If you're going to go to that court where there are six putative originalists, you better bring some originalism with you if you want to have a chance. Uh, and uh, they brought a lot, uh, shall we say. Uh, and because I, 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 I see a fractured decision. I, 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 you may not be able to respond to this, Ashley. I certainly understand it. I see a fractured decision coming, one that, you know, there may be an agreement on the result, but no agreement on the reasoning. Um, for the, it's why I wanted to bring out the various doctrines that were discussed, plain vanilla personal jurisdiction, uh, unconstitutional conditions, dormant commerce clause. Is there any other big doctrines that were discussed that may play into uh, the outcome or, or a position that a justice might take either in the majority or, or a dissent or a concurrence for that matter? Yeah. So I don't know if it's a different doctrine, but I think some of the justices were pretty interested in tag jurisdiction mm -hmm. and the court's prior decision. Justice Gorsuch brought up tag jurisdiction a couple times. Yeah. And, and the concern that I think those justices, including Justice Gorsuch, were expressing is that uh, Burnham is a, is a Scalia opinion. Uh, and it's also one of those fractured opinions. The court was unanimous in the result, but Scalia spoke for a four justice plurality. Justice Brennan spoke for a four justice uh, you know, concurrence in judgment. And then Justice Stevens said, ah, they're both kind of right. And I like the outcome. So um, we'll figure it out later. But what, what Burnham effectively does is it vindicates the historical principle that if a flesh and blood person is in a jurisdiction, they can be tagged by the process server for any suit, period. And by the mere fact of their presence in the sovereign territory of that state, there's no consent issue. It's not about contacts. Uh, that presence is enough of a contact for any suit under the sun. And the, and the concern is why are we treating corporations as special? Why do they get different constitutional treatment? And I think that's a, uh, you know, I'm self-interested, of course, but I think that's a very valid line of questioning. Uh, the text of the 14th Amendment is about persons. Um, there's no special person because you're you know, artificial and created by a state uh, and filing a piece of paper as opposed to being born uh, and having flesh and blood. So. I think that line of questioning is going to loom pretty large in either some concurrence or dissent or majority, depending on who comes out on top. And you're more than welcome to ask me to uh, speculate since I have the same information you do, uh, no inside baseball. It's very um, difficult to predict from oral arguments how the court's going to go. They sometimes surprise you. So you always should take with a pinch of salt, um, you know, the line of questioning. But That's why we call them the uh, prediction sure to go wrong. Yeah, right. Uh, and so it's, it's hazardous. Um, 
I guess I will say this is not a very bold prediction. I would be surprised if I lost worse than six to three or if I won better than six to three. It, it seems extremely unlikely to me that either side is going to command seven clean votes. So, you know, perilous to make that prediction, but I think I'm, I'm relatively safe in making it that, you know, it's going to be one of those six, three, five, four sorts of things either way. And I also agree with you. It may not be all people signing up for one opinion. There may be a lead plurality opinion with a concurrence and judgment with some dissents. Like it, it and, has and, that and sort of. And it's not feel. going to have a left, right, conservative, liberal valence. It's going to be yeah. people all over the places. That's why I wanted to point out Justice Kagan on one side with unconstitutional conditions, Justice Sotomayor on the other with, uh, with uh, you know, they do a lot of business there along with Justice Gorsuch with tag jurisdiction, Justice Alito saying, is a company really in business everywhere? Are they really, can they be tagged anywhere? That was one of his comments. They can't possibly be subject to, to, to specific personal jurisdiction or general personal jurisdiction everywhere. They can't be in 50 places at once, I think was his question or his statement. I, I, I messed up my answer to him. I just said no. You know, sometimes you should just answer yes or no. I should have said no, a company can't be, uh, or a natural person can't be in 50 states at the same time, but a natural person can consent to jurisdiction in all 50 states. And I guarantee you one of the 330 million Americans has done so through all of these shrink wrap contracts that they've <laughs> entered. So uh, it has happened at least once. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, never say never. It could, it could surprise us, but most likely there's going to be a cross ideological grouping uh, and you're not going to just sort of see a usual, uh, quote unquote, conservative liberal split. There's 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 room for disagreement on both sides of the jurisprudential ideological spectrum. And and, and, I, and we also need to mention the Dormant Commerce Clause, which not only Justice Kavanaugh, I think, is interested in, but perhaps Chief Justice Roberts as well. He expressed, yeah, I think he expressed some interest in that particular argument. Um, as, as on that point. I should have mentioned this earlier. Uh, your listeners should uh, pay attention to the National Pork Producers case, which was argued earlier in the term than Mallory. That's that's a dormant, com a straight dormant commerce clause case. Could you that talk about that case? Says, we talked about that on the show, I think. But could you give a give a thirty second uh, elevator bit on that? A quick primer, um, since it's not a case I'm as deeply familiar with is um, California cares about the ethical treatment of animals. And so they essentially uh, passed a law that said, um, you know, Iowa pork uh, is really difficult to sell in California because, you know, the way they cage the animal or whatever doesn't give it enough uh, freedom or enough uh, space. And so as a consequence, uh, Iowa uh, has a pretty strong interest in challenging that and saying, you know, you're making it impossible for us to sell pork nationwide because California's got these California specific rules. Uh, and so the court, the oral argument there was also, um, I think, cross ideological. You heard Justice Gorsuch expressing some pretty healthy skepticism that there is a dormant commerce clause. Uh, Justice Thomas is on record expressing similar skepticism. So I think the outcome of that case might bear watching for me. I'm certainly hitting refresh every Tuesday to see if they're going to release it. 
um, before mine because what they say there could have an impact on. I don't say I don't think either of these cases is coming out uh, anytime soon. That's just my prediction from uh, watching the court. I think these again are going to be fractured opinions. I think they're going to be late in the term. Maybe not the last couple, but the, I, I don't see them. That could be wrong, but I just don't see them coming out quickly, just because because of what we were just talking about with this uh, Mallory and with this other case. There, there's a lot of writing to be done, um, and, <laughs> and and trying to figure out trying. The, the chief justice has got his work cut out for him, trying to get a majority together, whatever it's going to look like. Uh, well, yeah, or, or or whoever the senior justice and the majority is. You're, you're uh, quite right. Well, I, he, I am not. I'm not sure. I want the chief justice to be in the majority uh, again. I'm pretty you can sure never you don't. <laughs> um, but he was very gracious and kind to me, as he often is. Uh, but his questions did not indicate that he was super enthused by Mr. Mallory's position. But you never know. No, no. Uh, I, the reason I bring up the chief is because he is generally he's trying to, you know. He's he he will he seems to be willing to have a more narrow opinion in order to get in order to get an opinion that garners more votes than than get you know if it has to be a more narrow um, opinion than what otherwise it might be um, and so he he seems to be willing to shave here and shave there to to get a vote to get a majority um, and he he's in the majority. I think only the second most frequent of the current composition other than Justice Kavanaugh. Um, and so that's, they are the middle of the court. Not that middle really matters as we mentioned in this particular case, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, it's, it's going to be a very interesting lineup. Uh, however, this, however, this turns out, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in conference after this oral argument. That would have been, that would have been very interesting to hear what the, the nine of them had to say. But we don't, we won't get to know that. <laughs> I think I would have loved it at least as much as you. No, no, you would have enjoyed it much more than I would have. Uh, but yeah. uh, we'll have to wait for the writings. And and as you said, um, not a surprise necessarily that this hasn't come out yet. And then you add on top, um, maybe because of the Dobbs leak or other security measures that they've put in place. But they're a little bit behind pace compared to prior years, so uh, people should not not necessarily expect the more controversial decisions to come out anytime soon. Uh, it could be much more back-end loaded than in previous terms. Yeah, this is not your traditional controversial because it doesn't have a social dimension to it. Uh, you know, it has great meaning to lawyers and those in, in civil practice, uh, but it, it's, you're right, it's controversial within the court, certainly, because of all of the different issues at, at play they're looking at stuff broader than just personal jurisdiction because you're dealing with all of these different, you know, how, if, if they end up being, let's suppose it ends up being a constitutional conditions case, I doubt that's going to happen, but they could really put some meat on the bone on a doctrine that has an impact across well, well beyond personal jurisdiction. The same thing with dormant commerce clause. If they go that direction, um, if they just limit it to, can you do this? It becomes a much narrower, type of decision and really only lawyers that practice civil law will care uh, <laughs> it'll be uh, all sounds right to me you know is there anything else you wanted to add uh we really appreciate you giving us time and and, and really appreciate your insights 
anything else you'd like to talk about before we uh, wrap up uh, on this matter? No, uh, I really appreciate you having me on. It was fun to uh, relive some of that. Um, it was the hardest dollar I've ever earned, but it was it was worth doing. Uh, I'm really grateful that I had a chance to represent Mr. Mallory at the Supreme Court, and I, I left well, it on the field for him. So I hope we get a good outcome. I, I you know, I, I good good luck indeed. You have made what should have been an easy decision for the court a very hard one. So congratulations, uh, you you won that. So. Uh, even if you may not win the case ultimately, which of course you want to do and want to do for your client, but uh, you, you've made what, sh what I, it's like, th this is easy. You can't do this. You've, uh, you, you've, you've really raised some questions. So congratulations. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Just uh, look forward to, look forward to our episode that we'll release on Sunday, everybody. We'll talk to you again on the Podium and Panel podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.